The carbon storm of 2021, energy shortages and high prices. Episode 39. Welcome to the My Energy 2050 podcast, where we speak to the people building a clean energy system by 2050. This week, I'm answering a question my brother sent to me. He works for a multinational company which produces parts all over the world. His job requires him to coordinate the flow of these parts into a final assembly for their customers. He's particularly concerned with energy shortages and reduced production by China's factories. He's asking if the global energy shortage and spiking prices is, as he writes, quote, a readily solvable problem, or are we headed someplace dire? End quote. I really like that question. So I take his question on and I produce this podcast just to answer my brother. And I do, what I do is answer it in the framing of what experts talk about when a hurricane comes ashore. Well, it's not directly because of climate change, but we can also say it is. Thus, we can speak of the carbon storm of 2021. This reflects the new reality of climate capitalism, which I spoke about in episode 31. We are now paying the price of the energy transition and how consumers, governments, and industry react and work together to make this transition will also determine the price we pay in the short and the long term. In this episode, I provide a simple framing of the problems in the East and the problems in the West. Unfortunately, I don't discuss the problems in the South, but we do hit on old topics like Russian gas and also energy shortages in China and Europe and how we, and how we get to talk about Europe's and Russia's dysfunctional de- dependency relationship. Okay, so from the outside, uh, for them, it may not look dysfunctional, but they're like an old married couple that's been married for 50 years. So for us, I think looking on the outside, it is dysfunctional. Okay, anyways, I'll get into that later. I also frame the importance of effective and a clear political response by those that believe in a 2050 transition. This could be a great moment for populist politicians to stop the energy transition even if they only offer corruption and maintaining the fossil fuel system that helps keep them in power. I underscore the role of fossil fuel regime players of OPEC and Russia and why the rents extracted to keep them pumping oil and gas, essentially the high prices that they're charging, is the cost of the energy transition in the medium term. The message is, hey, you want your electric vehicles? Then you need to pay higher gas prices until you decouple your transport from oil. So good luck in the political realm with that formula. And just a short note, we launched our Patreon page. You can assist the growth of our podcast by sharing the episodes or by going to Patreon and finding the My Energy 2050 podcast page. There's a link here in the show notes and you can now donate money to help us produce a better podcast and highlight those making a difference in the energy transition. The intent of the My Energy 2050 podcast is to spread the knowledge about how the energy system can assist our transition towards a greener, greener future. And now for this week's episode. The carbon storm of 2021. Okay, now for this week's episode. To answer my brother's question, let me read it out in full. Here we go. Uh, For those that are interested, I have... A bunch of slides, and I'll be posting those on the Patreon page uh, when this episode goes out. So my brother writes to me, uh, and he's always very brief, and I appreciate that, and concise. And his question is, and his whole email was this. So our supply chain in China is essentially at, I'll just say a reduced capacity, I won't say how much, due to shortages of electricity. We are hearing it's primarily coal, but also natural gas. Meanwhile, natural gas prices in Europe are skyrocketing. And he asks, is this a readily solvable problem or are we headed someplace dire? So as his older brother, of course, I have all the answers. But I also thought... um, and I was trying to bring a bunch of things together to do for this week's episode. And I think his question, which arrived just in time, provides kind of the starting point that I wanted to get into to look at the bigger picture, the rising prices we hear about in different parts of the world, in Europe, the United States, and China, and even the inflation prospects caused by high, higher energy prices. I don't talk about inflation today, but that's certainly one of the um, you know w- areas that we're headed in. If the price of energy and raw resources continues to increase. 
So what I have is an outline, and uh, you can see this on the on the slides. But basically, I'm just going to go through supply and talk about the shortages on that side. When we talk about demand, and really this is about the expectations, almost a business as usual demand of yes, we just buy the energy and we get it, and the kind of the overall chorus in in many parts of the world is wait, why are we having to pay so much money now? And um, I'm kind of proposing this new framing of climate capitalism. I've discussed it before, but um, I want to go in a little bit more detail. So I haven't written any kind of academic discussions on, on this, and I won't probably be able to until later next year. But just using the podcast here, at least, to explore this idea of what climate capitalism is, ism is and the energy transition. So uh, bear with me if not everything is thought, thought through. But I, we're making a, a, some um, uh, some headway here. And I had to come up with a new term to even describe the present moment. And I used the term the carbon storm. And I'll describe in a few minutes what that means. But really the response, and I would say the um, almost outrage over the current market prices that consumers may have to pay, certainly in the United States around oil, what, $3 something a, a, a gallon? Come on, sorry, I live in Europe. So, uh, and, and in Hungary with huge, huge uh, taxes on, on oil. But nonetheless, um, they're totally different systems and the people and how they're forced to drive, for example, in the United States, since there is no public transport, really pushes, it doesn't matter which country you live in, the cost of energy is associated with your living standard and your household income. And of course, the people making the less money are much more exposed to this. So we have issues of energy poverty. Won't go into that. we mainly staying at a broader level, political, economic systems and what's going on. And so I get to the end after talking about the political response because of the social pressure to make sure that prices stay low or we could just say affordable. And there's definitely a division between populists and what I'm just calling politicians uh, 2050 politicians. I don't want to call them green politicians because I think they're still quite mm, maybe caught up in the older system. And what we've agreed on politically to make this transition is not maybe as ambitious as it meet, as it should be. So I don't want to give credit where credit is not due. But um, there's there's definitely politicians, and I'll describe what they're saying, uh, that are pushing us towards a much more greener agenda, and they know the need for industry and for the energy sector as a whole to stay its course in this transition towards a much more heavily uh, renewable energy system than what we have now. And that's really uh, looking at the phase out of fossil fuels, which is causing some of these, these increases in prices at the moment. So first I just wanna go through the problems in the West and framing it in a very simple manner. It's a podcast, so let's just go with it. The problems in the West, and I take this from a very good report uh, put out by, let me look at my notes here. Here we go. Um, it's put out by the School of Trans Transnational Governments, uh, the Euro European Union. Um, why don't they have the logo on there? Um, European U University, sorry, European University Institute. Okay. And I'll have a link in the show notes. It's really nice. Uh, and they outline the, the problems really well. And also there's solutions, which somewhat correspond with what I'm saying. Um, but, but not all the way, but they, in the first paragraph, they have a very nice kind of, uh, they encapsulate quite well, the energy, even emergency that we're experiencing in Europe. And they write, today, gas prices in Europe are over 70 euros per megawatt hour, more than double their 2019 level. Wholesale electricity prices in some member states exceed 155 euros per megawatt hour, up from 40 euros per megawatt hour pre-pandemic. And also, there's a second point there. By mid-September, the EU emissions trading system, EU ETS, allowances reached levels above 60 euros per ton of carbon dioxide equivalent. In the past, it was much lower, over three times higher than the pre-pandemic level. So at least in, in this case, in Europe, we're outlining a very uh, strong change in, a, in just two years in the price of energy and you know the cost of, uh, for example, EU emissions uh, greenhouse gas emissions allowances, we'll call them that, in the EU ETS, 
is up higher. And we've actually had uh, previous episodes on the podcast, for example, with Dora Fazikash, uh, and the impact high energy prices or high, sorry, ETS prices will cause for consumers. And here uh, already the gas prices are up and we'll just say globally, we could start to see in the U.S. Uh, okay, I don't mean to laugh at the U.S., but U.S. definitely has highest, um, um, dealing with highest levels of crude oil since 2014. This is rising, and I'm bringing this in from the FT, Financial Times, rising in tandem with commodity prices and prompting fears that energy inflation, as I mentioned at the beginning of the show, could stall a post-pandemic global economic recovery. Okay, so uh, I'll get into what those political responses are to these big problems. Because what's interesting is Europe has this, um, the pressure comes from what, electricity prices, gas prices for heating, for powering homes and for industry and of course, even on the gas side, like in like in France and the rural areas, people living that also have to drive. But in the U.S., the the gas prices for cars uh, from oil, let's not mix it up with natural gas, is is much much higher. Problems in the East. This is what we have. We got China. Uh, I'm using a lot from Financial Times today, but the Financial Times articles are very succinct and to the point, and they reflect other readings I've been doing in The Guardian, New York Times, and other sources. So China, they outline three key areas of why there's an energy shortage there. It says local governments are rushing to comply with Beijing's emission targets and have therefore been restricting coal-fired power generation. Number two, there's a shortage of coal supplies that the country transitions to renewable energy. And number three, price caps on electricity mean that demand is unaffected by increasing costs of coal and other inputs. I think I read some other articles that uh, the price has actually gone up and so factories can't afford it. So they're shutting down or just um, the power producers, the generators couldn't find this article uh, themselves are shutting down the pl- their coal-fired power plants because the price that they can charge on the open market doesn't match the price of the coal itself. So you have a huge market issue in, in China, and we can definitely point that as a transition problem, right? So they, wanna, they want to uh, restrict the emissions in the country, and so it's had this knock-on effect in coal as well and how much can be produced in coal. Same thing in Europe. Um, this is not just kind of a random uh, bad weather event, okay? ETS prices, it's a, it's a system built to reduce carbon um, emissions, and that, that is biting now, okay? And the United States, oil, um, I'll get into that and why that's connected to the transition. It's higher OPEC um, expectations, or it's OPEC um, and Russia. I'm trying to give too much away until I get there. So anyways... Let me go on to Russia here. Uh, Russia, a friendly country to the EU. And uh, they also bring in this in this Financial Times article. UK and European natural gas prices shot higher earlier in the day to trade at close to 10 times the level from the beginning of the year. Um, But what's great, we have Putin and he jumps in here and he's like, hey, everything's going to be okay because we can send some more. Uh, You just have to accept our conditions in Europe. And again, that, that goes along with um, this transition that's occurring and having gas as a bridging fuel. So there's going to be demand. And we've seen it this year in Europe. The demand for gas is going up because of the, um, the shift away from coal-fired power plants and nuclear in Germany. So there's a greater d- demand for gas. And that's also LNG. What I don't have on my slides, but also it's, it's out there, is Brazil, right? There's a... Um, there's less hydro being produced because they had lower rainfalls. So they have to buy more LNG. So there's this shifting of LNG away from Europe and going to other markets that are willing to pay more for that. And so then you have less reserves um, in Europe because they didn't fill up because the price was higher and they were expecting it to go lower. And so now you have Russia kind of stepping in and saying, hey, uh, we can we can offer you some of our gas that we have, but we have certain conditions. And let me get into that. So essentially, we have the supply side. And on my slides, um, I have a very inappropriate uh, picture of James Bond from Russia with love. But uh, I I think actually, 
it, it's appropriate in this in this case when we talk about Russia. Always always something fun with Russia there. And we have oil, and I just have what WTF will happen to oil demand, right? So this is the big question. And I remember I was at the University of Dundee, and um, I believe it was the president of OPEC uh, was there, and he gave a, a speech. He was a graduate from the University of Dundee. And really his, his call, very nice gentleman, was simply, hey, there's a lot of uncertainty over investments that need to occur by OPEC countries. And this transition that's occurring, they don't know what to do. Um, and, I, and I felt it was a very honest uh, opinion he was giving. And we can say that there's a lot of politics involved or not. But, but the idea that this energy transition is occurring and oil producing countries need to understand also themselves whether investments need to be made or not, right? We talked previously about the demand by um, private oil companies in the West and their, the pressure they're receiving to transition away from oil. But of course, we have whole countries that are dependent on oil revenue and are large producers. And they also need to have some certainty over the uncertainty, if that makes sense, into what, how much they should producing and when or what investments do they need to make into new fields or new areas to keep pumping the oil that, that they're not quite sure. If there's a big push, for example, in electric vehicles, uh, as is planned in the Europe and the United States, what does that do for oil, oil demand? So I, 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 we could definitely go in to talk about politics and things like this, but I'm just going to approach it today as investment uncertainty um, driving the price and keeping the price higher up. Okay. And this is also a, what I call a long COVID symptom. Okay. So the price hasn't, hasn't recovered or hasn't dropped. And the, the amount of oil being pumped hasn't, hasn't recovered from, from the COVID slump. So it's taking time to, to bring it back up. And that's a bit of probably where the politics lies in keeping this price up. And of course, these are artificial prices in a way, right? If you control the amount, if you have a cartel controlling the amount that's being produced and put out on the, the market. So there's a lot of manipulation. And, and I think that's an appropriate term to use in this term in, in the market. So we certainly don't want to use the term free market, although we'll go into detail on that in a minute. Gas. So we're talking about supply. So gas. And this is great. This is attachment disorder or relational dependency. I put it in kind of personal terms here because shale gas, for example, the dash for gas is over. Now the big concern is cash flow. And this is, this is really important because uh, when, when shale gas started off in 2012, when the dash for gas, dash for gas began in the United States in 2012, there was, unlimited money. So a lot of financial institutions poured money into these companies, expecting the return to come and the money to come. So there was high debt level. When COVID came along, there was a big crash. You know, everything kind of stopped. The extraction of oil and gas from from shale gas stopped. And, and so then <clears throat> now basically the industry, we could say in a sense, has been righted. I don't know that much about it, but basically the returns and the consolidation of the industry is really um, based on, we could say, more solid financing or expectation that the financial returns are necessary for these wells to keep operating or to open up new wells. So, So there's been a shift in the financing of shale gas, which actually really kept the uh, economy going in the United States in the Obama years because GDP growth was only around 2%. So low price gas really kept it, kept it gr growing at that time. And then maybe that explains some of the efforts in the United States to lower the price of oil as well. This connection between economic growth and energy consumption, fossil fuel consumption. Also, we have Russia. And um, the two weeks ago, the previous interview with Margarita Balmaceda, we get into a little bit of this, and, and I haven't been able to do too much reading about the conditions on Nord Stream 2, but definitely there's this argument with opening up, and what could open up in the next few months is Nord Stream 2, which would enable more gas to flow from Russia to Germany. But the question is, uh, and the dispute is uh, around um, how much access do competitors have to this gas pipeline? And that's mainly meaning that 
it, uh, Gazprom can't be the only supplier supplying gas through Nord Stream 2, but there has to be other companies as well. So we could say this is a regulatory dispute, uh, a geopolitical dispute. It depends how you want to frame it. I don't know what the United States thinks on this or whatever they say they're observing, but I think it's just the United States trying to push their LNG onto Europe, which could never flow in sufficient quantities to replace Russia anyways. So uh, the U.S. is a bit irrational on their opinions on Nord Stream 2. It's happening. It's connecting Russia and Germany. So what are the regulations and how do you, how, how does the gas flow and whose gas is flowing through those pipelines, basically? And, and uh, by Putin stepping in and making some recent comments about that they could actually uh, send some more gas to help this, I think, I think there's a little, little bit of brinkmanship there, political brinkmanship. Basically, <clears throat> Putin saying, hey, uh, you know, we kind of held back up until now, but just so you know, we'll keep holding back until this, this whole regulatory issue is resolved, right? And this enables, this enables Russia to be in a stronger position by just simply sending what is contracted gas and what is more spot market price gas. And now the gas system overall in the EU is meant to be much more competitive. And so the, the uh, companies are operating along these spot market prices rather than long-term supply contracts. And that's less advantageous advantageous to to Russia and now Europe's gotten itself into this difficult position where the spot price is much higher than contracted gas or however we want to play with that and and Russia we we can say controls the resources here and Europe hasn't been able to transition sufficiently and quickly enough away from gas to find other sources of gas or even other other methods like solar or wind to replace gas because gas is really essential. We could say at least in the medium term for energy transition. Also on the supply side, we have coal. I just write next to this is a dirty addiction. We can say there's cold Turkey, how, how basically it's like cigarette smoking, right? So how do you want to go off it? Uh, the Chinese, we can see in the supply shortages there, uh, are trying to regulate how it's phased out. So they've kind of set some boundaries and some limits, okay? And that's causing supply problems. Or you can just go cold turkey, just shut down the plants as well. Uh, Germany has done that. I know there's a dispute with Poland, and the EU is really trying to shut down a, a coal-fired power plant and is imposing high fines every day that's being used. It's not an example of complete cold turkey, but Poland really has some of the lowest energy prices, electricity prices in the EU because they're using coal. So it becomes this, this delicate balancing act of how do we keep prices overall low for consumers and for industry itself. I'll get into, into that in a second. And how do, we, how do we move away from fossil fuels and embrace renewables and deploy those at a sufficient level where the price is not increased? I just want to touch on the demand side because basically we can start to characterize households and industry with different viewpoints. And I think this is important because some households can absorb energy price increases. They can do things they can afford maybe renovating and other households can't do anything. And same thing with industry as well. Some industries are much more cutting edge and in even companies, it's regardless of industry wide, we could even say specific countries, uh, companies actually get it. So I have this description of industry number one, actually maybe this would be company number one. And it says, we got it, right? So these have, companies have actually implemented technical changes brought in new technologies or new ways of process, new processes, and they have reduced their energy consumption. I know of one I just saw on LinkedIn, but I know them personally as well. They've really instituted new technology and that which are now online and it's cut their gas consumption by 50% just in time. In fact, so, so it's a, it's a company that, that gets it right. And they've been implementing changes over a number of years. Uh, or we have company number two where they just don't get it. And this I kind of know from speaking with other people in the energy efficiency area where companies really make these decisions over projections of what energy prices will be over the, over the you know, say medium term, five years or 10 years. And if something's not, doesn't have an immediate payback, they don't make those changes. 
So it has to be, yeah, they'll do it if they have, if they're forced to do it by regulation or whatnot. But if the payback period is not within a year or two, then they don't want to do it. So in a sense, I would say that that group of companies don't quite get it right. They all, all companies need to be implementing these changes and there is a financial side to it. And maybe it's a bit too easy for me not to be, uh, to be sitting outside of industry and saying they need to make the transition. But over the long term, we start to see this unpredictability on energy prices and these carbon storms, as I'll describe in a minute what that is, comes along and can change it, right? And then you have companies or even industry number three, and in a sense, we it says we get it, okay? But WTF, we make steel and cement. So what are they supposed to do? These are in, in, we have the fertilizer industry, for example, and this is big news in the UK and the EU making ammonia requires gas and the price of gas uh, now is too, too high. And then they're not going to be able to recoup that money. So it's a good example of where uh, a natural resource like natural gas is really needed to, to be making this resource. And we can definitely talk about how maybe we should just get rid of fertilizer or something like that. Right. But I think that's another discussion, but we can say there's key industries that really do require some of these natural energy resources and how do we assist them and move them along at maybe a faster pace. Um, but we also have to be aware of the immediate short-term impact this has, for example, on the construction industry. And then I want to shift briefly and I don't want to go into too much detail because I could really do a whole podcast on, on households, right? And those that can't afford it, which are many in Europe and many around the world, right? So increasing energy costs really put people in bad financial positions and they really have to choose between food or heating their homes or as other research is coming out, uh, even cooling their homes is a major cost for people and dealing with these, these uh, increasing temperatures. And then there's a, another group of householders who can afford, right? They can, maybe energy prices are increasing, uh, gas prices in the United States are increasing, but they, they can afford it, but we all complain about it. Like it's Biden's fault, or we call them, we can say in Europe, it's Brussels fault, right? For implementing these green, this green agenda. But really at the end of the day, if we don't implement a green agenda or this energy transition and we keep using fossil fuels, nobody's going to end up in a good position that way. So <clears throat> what we get to then is the energy markets and it's the shift to climate capitalism. Maybe it's just kind of a catchphrase and, and I feel bad. I haven't had t time to write more about it because it seems to be much more of a pressing issue to explore and explain, but I'll just frame it um, like this. We'll talk about the free energy markets and this is a neoliberal system where there's competition and this is the basis of the US and the EU energy systems. So it's meant to uh, have, have a market-based system uh, where there's competition, there's multiple suppliers and the consumers get to choose who the supplier is that they go with. And because there's competition, or supposed competition, then this should drive the price to a lower level, okay? Or there's another model, and I would even put this uh, in previous points in the United States and even in the European countries context, uh, which was regulating monopolies, and we'll just call it for today regulatory capitalism, where the idea and the philosophy behind this is not that... Uh, uh, markets don't work, but also that consumers need protection and stability within the market. So the, the regula regulations are much more geared towards protecting consumers and giving them some, some stability and predictability in their energy bills. And I would even say, I would even put China in that as it's trying to regulate how this phase out of, of coal is being done. Uh, even if there are problems in the market, um, they're definitely causing blackouts and reducing outputs of factories. So, so how the energy markets are handled and the philosophy underlining those is really essential for each system and how it affects the consumers and the prices they pay. So I'll just say there's simply no free market. There's no free energy market. All energy markets uh, are regulated 
in some form or another through subsidies, through explicit regulations, to how the market operates of who can offer services and who can buy, all these types of things. So it's highly complex. And I would say even very national in scope and even local in scope over <clears throat> supply and um, let's say transmission lines, these, these types of things all affect how much consumers pay in each country. And then we get into climate capitalism. And I just want to kind of reflect on this and what I've spoken previously about. This is a really key area is that the social support is very important. I put semi-important, but it's very important. And there has to be a new narrative that's accepted more by society of why we are sacrificing our money, in a sense, to make this transition. And this really needs to be combined with direct financial assistance. So I think the world and people, it depends on the country, right? But are getting used to getting money. Actually, that's totally a Western problem, right? In the United States, Trump sent out these checks to everybody. And, but somehow there has to be, and, and even here in Hungary, we can say there's a direct tie in with our energy bills and, um, and making it a political statement that you're paying a low energy bill because we made a political decision. And so what has to happen then is the market price will determine public support. So this is the dangers in, in having the market priced and the market more of a neoliberal model is that public support really is, is based on how much homeowners are paying or industry is paying. Okay. And what needs to occur is, is, First, the reindustrialization at the national level through kind of a green agenda, right? So if you're going to phase out coal jobs, then there has to be new jobs replaced, okay? And so both society in a job sense and economic sense for economic growth views this as important, but also the stability kind of more under a regulatory capitalism model is very essential. And let's not forget that geopolitics will definitely influence social support so, of course, Russia can play its game of, oh, we're just kind of holding back and waiting to see you figure out your regulations so we can send more gas. Uh, but they also exert this geopolitical pressure as well. OPEC, for example, with keeping prices high, also exerts a geopolitical pressure or cost to those countries um, being unclear in what they want to do in the future. So it has a real economic impact. And... What's also interesting is that even on the private side, right, there's limited private uh, capital going to fossil fuel firms now. So, and there's a redirection um, into, into non-fossil fuel energy sources, uh, energy companies, but this is all going to take time. So in my previous um, discussion on this, we could say 15 to 20 years, right? So 2040, we'll probably be pretty close but, but a lot of investment has to occur in the next 15 to 20 years. And we can start to see this, this carbon storm that's going on, right? This confluence of different events and shortages and higher demand is really producing uh, this, this carbon storm. But it's part of the retooling of the economy that's going to take years to do. So if we start to understand that government needs to step in and assist, not just like put money into this, right? But they need to help companies and consumers afford this transition and much more, I would say, regulatory efforts and assistance into energy efficiency has to occur. So we arrive at kind of defining what climate capitalism is and a carbon storm. And I just want to provide this definition, and this is probably over the top for a podcast in means of a definition for climate capitalism, but there's a lot here. And I think how much time we got. Yeah, we're over what, what anyone was probably listening to me now, but climate capitalism, and this is what I say is a model pushed by the threat of losing technological and political dominance by the loss of social support for capitalist modes of production what that does that mean? <laughs> so, so that means that the EU, the US, even China, right? Why that's why these shortages are. They know they can't keep using fossil fuels. And so there's also the awareness they have to invest in new technologies to be internationally competitive against each other, actually. 
So they have to ensure that there's support for new technologies and to be politically at the top of this, they don't want to, they don't want to not invest in this. Right. And it has to be affordable. So politicians have to understand and, and themselves, I would say they inherently, if you're a good politician, understand you have to walk this fine line between price increases to pay for this transition and also investment into and deployment of new technologies. So what is occurring is I'll continue with the definition, a technological and resource shift to away from carbon-based industrial development reduces geopolitical and economic risks threatened by climate change and authoritarian regimes. It won't get into all that, but basically what I'm saying here is that the shift away from carbon-based industrial development reduces geopolitical and economic risks. We can see that the play by Russia or OPEC, I, I don't even want to like frame it as these are the, th these are like ob obvious threats in a sense, right? If you were in the shoes of Putin or an OPEC leader, you would probably do the same, right? You'd be like, yeah, I'm going to charge you more money because you want to like not use my product anymore. But right now you're completely tied to it. And now you say you're going to go away. Yeah, I'm going to charge you more. So, so these are just realities. Maybe it's a geopolitical reality or, but it's reality of energy markets. And if, if we're going to play this market-based game, then this is the cost. What needs to occur though, is a faster deployment of newer technologies. And <clears throat> I don't want to make it all supply, uh, but unfortunately, I think I've hit on mainly on supply-based uh, solutions and not energy efficiency solutions or reduction in demand, which uh, has many more solutions in it that are much more affordable than just um, creating more supply from um, solar, from wind, for example. Okay, and then a car carbon storm. This is how I'm defining it here. A carbon storm is a restricted supply capacity to deliver energy resources to match consumer demands in an affordable manner. So again, a carbon storm, it's restricted supply capacity. So there's not enough natural resources like coal or gas getting out. It's somehow constrained within the energy, the top of the energy system. And it's not getting delivered to where the conversion happens into heat, into electricity, or into, yeah, into a car, right? Into combustion. So there's supply, and I continue, supply restrictions are a combination of regulatory mechanisms and climate conditions brought about by climate change and the governmental effort to reduce the long-term impact of greenhouse gas emissions. So let me just repeat, supply restrictions are a combination of regulatory mechanisms, right? This is the regulations that are in the energy markets that shape the energy markets. Maybe um, cartel activity would be one of those um, supply restrictions, but also regulations, the price of e in ETS, for example, the price of carbon emissions. And also what I include here, though, is climate conditions, right? If there's not enough wind being blown, if there's not enough rain, or if there's too much rain, like in India, now that you don't have enough dry coal, all these climatic conditions actually influence the price of energy itself for the consumer. So for electricity, it influences the price. If there's not enough water in hydroelectric water reserves, right, then they have to shift, as is the case, to gas or to another uh source to produce electricity. So climatic conditions, and as, as we have climate change, this is going to be even more of an issue. I'm just guessing, right? So I'm not looking at any models of what, how much rain is going to fall into, into regions that rely on uh, hydro reserves. That sounds like a really cool thing to examine. But, but we can definitely start to see that climatic conditions influence how much electricity is going to be produced. Uh, just think about nuclear power plants relying on rivers, for example, to cool their reactors. So all this comes into play uh, over the long term. Um, over the long term. So this is not short term. This is not just well. It's a perfect storm. What I'm calling it is a carbon storm of 2021. There could be a carbon storm of 2023 as well, right? So here we go. Response. I'm moving on to my next slide. It's much easier on the slides. 
And there's a social and economic impact. Okay, so there's, I'm going to focus on the political response of the carbon storm of 2021. And here we have Franz Timmerman. What is he, the president of the... Um, no, sorry. He's the EU commissioner. I know this stuff just not off the top of my head. EU commissioner in charge of the Green Deal. That's right. He didn't get elected as president. Anyways, um, and he says, he says, um, Brussels was working to find a consensus at EU level on how we can protect our citizens against undue price hikes. The level of social unrest, if we leave the climate crisis untackled, will be un- insupportable unsupportable would be better. But anyways, so, I mean, his, his point of view, and also we have an anonymous um, political person stating in the FT, the commission has to act immediately. One senior EU politician told the FT, otherwise the green deal would be the symbol of high energy prices. And we will have instead Jean's, you know, the French movement that I can't pronounce protesting over energy poverty everywhere. The politician said, Okay, so what this is about is if energy prices are increasing, there's going to be a lot of social unrest and this green deal that's being rolled out in the EU, and I would even say the new green deal that's being rolled out in the United States will become under threat. And what I mean by that actually is this populist response. We can see Trump, who's now out, but let's not think that Trump's um, appeal or what his views are on coal and fossil fuels has gone away in the United States. Um, but we can also look at the, within the EU and Orban, who's Mr. Populist himself. Uh, he posted this nice video on Facebook. Uh, watched it this morning with my son. It's all in Hungarian. I understood like half of it. And then of course had a nice little discussion with my son who did the translation for me. But nonetheless, I also came across a news source hungry around the clock And Hungary's uh, Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, declared the energy prices that have been unleashed due to Brussels' fault are not to be solved with taxes. Brussels wants to impose taxes on car owners and homeowners as part of a plan disguised as climate protection. Hungary rejects this. Okay, first, let's just say that Viktor Orban is the Prime Minister of Hungary. I have have a lot of views on him, but... uh, um, so there's a power plant, a coal-fired power plant, lignite-powered plant in the eastern part of Hungary. And RWE owned it for, I don't know, 20 years, something like this. Uh, actually, even longer, I think, <clears throat> uh, since the privatization, 1992. It's, it's in my book, um, Energy Cultures. You can buy that book. Um, and, and RWE owned it. They set aside money every year for the rehabilitation and the, and the phasing out of the plant itself uh, to, to cover the costs. And um, um, one of Orban's, um, we'll just say business associates, who has been linked to him, uh, Maisel Roche, uh, and his company, they, they bought it uh, from RWE, maybe Eon, but it was RWE. There's so much cons- consolidation, along with the Czech company. And the Czech company was kind of kicked out or they left over disagreements. And so the company Matrai Power Plant was left with Mezoroš and they took out all that money that was saved up to phase out, to decommission the Lignite Power Plant. And then uh, the Hungarian state and through MVM, the Hungarian power company, bought the hollowed out entity that is Matrai Power Plant after Mezoroš took all the money from it. So that's kind of like how um, a populist politician does this energy transition is takes all the money from the fossil fuel sector and then asks for more money from the EU to pay for this transition or says this consumers can't afford this transition when, when all the money is just taken out of the system. Energy efficiency, for example, money that was given from the EU was meant to go to homeowners for energy efficiency measures in, in houses. And the Orban government, um, they, they, they agreed with the EU, so the EU did agree with this, that the money instead would go to state institutions to um, remodel the buildings for state institutions. Yeah, like schools and hospitals. Uh, 
and not to homeowners. So homeowners in Hungary are in pretty bad shape. Um, I know I'm one <laughs> and I'm sitting here with my Chirup Kaiha. That's a, that's a, what is a masonry heater? Doesn't quite translate as well. You know, these big tile heaters that heat my living room. And I just look at my neighbors as well, right? So there's very little efforts going into, uh, into energy efficiency, for example, in Hungary, that could really make a difference as energy prices increase. Okay, there's a price cap in Hungary and everything's completely regulated. So consumers don't feel this. But we can see, or I can see firsthand, that the country is not prepared for this energy transition that's occurring uh, by, by no means. And the EU money, I don't know where that is, but of course the, the EU doesn't trust Viktor Orban anymore with, with money. And this is not to say that Orban's completely bad, but this is the system here in Hungary, right? And, and he got it right. He got it right when he was elected in 2010, that the energy prices were too high. The market price was too high and consumers were paying this. This was basically unregulated market that was, um, instituted along the lines that the EU proposed and required of member states. And he came along and said, no, this is not good for homeowners. And so he set a price cap in place or he set a regulated price and he's gotten a lot of political advantage out of that. And if you look at, um, look at it, maybe that wasn't great over the long term for the homeowners, but it's a political step, right? That, that people understand in a very simple manner. So if people that want to push for politicians that want to push for this green deal or uh, going carbon neutral by 2050, they also have to contend with politicians that can present this energy transition as costing too much and then others should pay, not their, not their constituents. So this is, this is a, I think this is why it's interesting to look at, at Hungary and the actions that Orban has actually done because it's, 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 it's a warning to other politicians not to allow the free market or an unregulated market to be affecting homeowners and even industry itself. Industry pays quite a high price in Hungary to subsidize the homeowners and actually taxpayers, which are the same, but the money, the money is hidden, right? So, so in the end, the debt accrues in the whole system, which I've written about, and the debt keeps accruing, 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 who's going to pay it in the future? Who knows, right? So in one sense, we have this energy transition by 2050, which is attempting to pay for itself as it goes along. But we also have this fossil fuel system, which is accruing debts to be paid off in the future. And all, all of it is a bad mix, I think, for consumers in the end. So conclusion here, the carbon storm, it's a new structure of climate capitalism. The carbon storm of 2021 there's capacity constraints of energy resources. There's increased demand due to climatic impact and fuel switching, right? So low hydro reserves, got to use gas instead. There's a relational dependency of fossil fuel regime power brokers, OPEC and Russia. They still exert a lot of influence. There's a lack of new renewable energy um, deployment and solutions. We can say that tremendous progress has been made over the past few years, really tremendous. This is really something I think is, is awesome. But if we're going to have this transition happen, uh, it has to happen quickly and effectively and with eyes wide open on the impact of consumers. And there's a lack of direct consumer engagement to ease the energy transition. As I mentioned, energy efficiency efforts. So I'm not... I don't know, maybe I'm a fan of big government. I've never thought about that. But consumers definitely need help. Homeowners need help in affording this transition. And political pressure to pay for the transition laggards is... Uh, so how, how I basically think about this, that there's a lot of political pressure. We can blame Brussels, as Viktor Orban does, or we can be on, in Poland and blame Brussels as well for shutting down coal, right? So there's and expecting more money to come from the sky, from Brussels. But on the other hand, <clears throat> how, how does the EU play this out? They give, they give in to Viktor Orban after him and his, his friends will say, take all the money from the fossil fuel sector and profit from it. So, so there has to be this maybe more direct connection between ensuring um, 
democracy exists in a country. Uh, there's a strong democracy, but even right, people are going to get fed up with the free market and put pressure on politicians that are are elected in a fair and transparent manner. So, so it's a, it's a very hard um, compromise that's going to have to occur going forward. Maybe that was just a complete horrible conclusion in what I said with no answer, but but there has to be a, a transition. So the short-term problems and transition to climate capitalism, my brother's question to get back to that, is this a readily solvable problem or are we headed someplace dire? And I have absolutely, I have two answers. The first answer is yes. And it depends if you don't believe in a political response. So if you don't believe that politicians are going to be able to step in and manage the situation, manage this balance between this uh, coal phase out or fossil fuel phase out and phase in of renewables, then yeah, we're, we're going someplace bad. But if the answer is no, if you actually believe that there's a political response coming and that the politicians can handle this, then, then we're not hired. We're not headed someplace dire. So what is the response populist or crafted political economic response based on coordinated climate capitalism phase in of new tech? I don't know. So, so let me explain that again. The, the populist response would be to regulate the, the price and have consumers feel nothing, okay? But at the same time, accruing tons of debt, um, taking money out of the uh, energy system that's meant to revitalize and implement, implement a sustainable energy system. So populists uh, tend to speak on one topic and demonstrate that this can be done, but behind the doors they do other things, okay? Or we could say a politician that believes in climate neutral or carbon neutrality by 2050 and a phase in period of 15 to 20 years can actually balance this, right? So they can understand that, yes, technologically, we have to make this phase in of newer technologies, but there's higher rents to be paid over the next 15 to 20 years. And I think putting in different financial mechanisms to pay for that is possible. So I won't go into detail. So that's my answer for this week for my brother. And maybe he's still listening, maybe not, who knows. Um, but I just want to say that's all the outline. And it is, um, it is the carbon storm of 2021, energy shortages and high prices. And this is the podcast for this week. So where we're headed, I don't know, but I'm not so optimistic unless there's a balance between how much consumers pay and the role of rollout of new technologies. It all has to be sped up. So with that, I want to thank you for listening to this episode. Please go to the Patreon page and become a member. That's always good. And um, you can see the slides on the Patreon page. And that's all for me this week. Thank you very much. Thank you for joining us for this episode. We produce the My Energy 2050 podcast to learn about cutting edge research and the people building our clean energy system. If you enjoyed this episode or any episode, please share it. The more we spread our message of the ease of an energy transition, the faster we can make it. You can follow us on LinkedIn, where we are the most active on the My Energy 2050 webpage, or on Twitter and Facebook. I'm your host, Michael LaBelle. Thank you for listening to this week's episode.